HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, your host, Erica Weitz. Oh, so, deep sigh. Way back, way, way back, geez, almost 30 years ago, I was a wee young college student in Manhattan and relatively, okay, totally clueless clueless. Although in true late adolescent form, I actually thought that I knew everything. Coming from a big suburban high school full of the usual breakfast club type social groupings, I was one of the artsy, punk and new wave loving slash artsy stoner Brian Eno listening kids. And I sort of straddled the two groups who had big overlapping sections in our kind of social Venn diagram way. And I thought I was pretty cool in a sort of outcast, coolness is on the fringes kind of way. And then I moved into the city to go to college, and I realized that Long Island cool was not city cool. And my coolness floundered into a heap under the freshman 15-pound weight gain and a serious lack of finances and a burgeoning bout of a 10-year depression and a general feeling of being lost at sea with no map or GPS to guide me. Yeah, yeah, I know. Wah, wah, poor me, right? Everybody goes through that crap. It's okay. I got better. And, I mean, look at me now. So cool. Because what's cooler than being on Heritage Radio Network? Am I right? But in that four-year floundering disaster called my college experience, I, like most other college-age kids, I think, 
messed around with many roles and identities and styles and personae, trying to figure out who I was. Who am I? In high school, it had kind of been easy. You found your proverbial table in the cafeteria, so to speak. And if you didn't, well, it made you a tougher person, I guess. But my college, being a city school and basically being a commuter school, except for the homeless shelter slash welfare hotel in Hell's Kitchen of the 80s, not the bar and restaurant scene Hell's Kitchen of today, that was our official dorm with its six by 10 foot square rooms and scary dark abandoned floors in the old YMCA on 34th Street and 9th Avenue seriously lacked the campus slash common area slash organized college experience life that other schools had and honestly i will admit it it was a huge mistake on my part to attend that school because i didn't have that campus experience but thinking i was so cool and so sophisticated and so all-knowing i scorned no i spurned the campus existence experience and went off to the city big mistake mamas don't let your babies grow up to attend art school that's really how the song should go So I desperately tried to figure it all out. Again, floundering was involved for sure. Now, this was in the late Reagan era, the late 80s. And all around me, I saw and I read about piles of money being made and the late 70s decrepitude of the city being bulldozed into the first wave of shiny gentrification. And I just assumed that upon graduating with a BFA in photography, I'd be scooped up by some gallery or agency and I'd be a big successful artist too. Um... No, I was poor and clueless and sad and lost. And so I tried different things to try to navigate the waters, figure out who I was, find my identity, rescue and restore the confidence that I had finally mustered up in my late teens after being a chubby nerdster as a kid. Now, always interested in food. I read a lot about it. Even before it occurred to me that it could be a career, I was involved in food. My artwork in school had begun to involve food, and I found solace in food. And since it was the throes of the fat-phobic years, and I read a lot of health magazines and a lot of books of the era about food, all of which villainized meat and fat and cheese and animal products and urged a diet of grains, grains, and more grains and low-fat everything, I read Diet for a New America. Die for New America was a book by John Robbins, who's the heir to the Baskin-Robbins fortune, who declined his massive inheritance, his ice cream fortune, and became a radical vegan and in his book exposed the cruelty and unsustainability and sheer awfulness of the industrial meat, dairy, and egg industries. And so I became a vegetarian. Now, this was decades before you could buy grass-fed bison at Costco and Whole Foods was just a granola and incense store in Austin, Texas. But I was a lousy vegetarian because I lived on pasta and pizza and bagels. And needless to say, the freshman 15 didn't budge and actually turned into a freshman 25 or 30. And in my senior year of college, my seminar instructor, who was also a vegetarian and also gay, although I didn't know it and I had a crush on him, which made me even more sad, took our small class out for dinner at the end of the semester to a restaurant in Chinatown near his apartment. It was called Vegetarian Paradise, and it was of the Chinese style of vegetarian cooking where tofu and wheat gluten and other odd grain products are processed and manipulated to resemble meat, like mock duck and mock fish and mock chicken. 
sort of like today's tofu pup hot dogs and boca burgers, but shaped into kind of weird, vaguely meat-like slabs. And then turned into traditional Chinese dishes, just using the mock versions of the proteins. Now, I'm sure this sort of place still exists. You'll just never catch me in one of them again. And eventually, there were several other locations, too, north of Chinatown in the West Village and places like that. Now, at the time, I really kind of liked it because it was, you know, dishes filled with, like, meaty and chewy stuff, like meat, and lots of vegetables, which I was not eating nearly of if practically any of and the place was fairly cheap which i needed it to be and i may have gone back once or twice after that but a couple of years after college i decided hey i'm really into food why don't i just become chef and i gradually started to eat meat again because i was cooking it and i left my misguided vegetarian days behind now i'm still not a huge carnivore and I love vegetables and beans and lentils and other plant-based proteins. I just do not love nasty wheat gluten stretchies modeled into faux duck breast shapes. As my father-in-law would say, not enjoyable. So what am I getting at here? You know, it always takes me a while to get to the point. So just be patient. The reason I bring up vegetarian paradise after not thinking about it for more than a few decades is that the daughter of the original owner of the Vegetarian Paradise Empire is buying a bungalow up in tiny bungalow land where my summer place is. How weird. She's a friend of a resident, and we met at a party, and she's fun and smart and interesting, and I like her, and I'm glad she's going to be my neighbor because we need more people there, frankly, under 60. Now, she's still a lifelong vegetarian, but I won't hold that against her, and it will make things much cheaper for me when I invite her over for dinner on the patio one of these nights anyway. But talk about the past coming around again. I had totally forgotten about that dinner at Vegetarian Paradise in Chinatown, deep in the throes of my college-era misery, lost in a serious identity crisis. It had faded into the mists of time until she reminded me of that night of mock duck and faux chicken and stretchy, weird fish-like shapes. It was sort of like savory Swedish fish made out of wheat products some weird shit nothing i tried in those days of college era misery and identity crisis nothing seemed to stick as i tried on all the different hats until i got involved in food and put on a chef hat which i always hated wearing and then it all made sense to me or at least it helped throwing myself into the world of food helped. Now, there's plenty of bullshit in the food world and plenty of hype and smoke and mirrors and marketing and everything and with social media even more now. But it's nothing like the art world, which I was coming out of. I mean, look at Jeff Koons. If you don't know who he is, just Google him. Jeff Koons is the highest paid contemporary artist in history. And what does he make? A gigantic mountain of Play-Doh and huge stainless steel balloon animals who's bullshitting whom that's the stuff that drove me crazy back in school what was authentic what was bullshit who was scamming who and for how much and how come i wasn't smart enough to get in on it now food while it can be totally prone to bullshit kind of makes sense when it's honest and it's real food and it's not trying to deceive or manipulate you or scam you or overcharge you or blow the smoke and mirrors in your face. That's what real food is about, being honest, not deceiving, not fucking with the message. 
so to speak. Now, my friend Ben, oh, who wrote my theme music, by the way, Ben Kaplan, came up to visit us at Tiny Bungalow last Friday to take a hike for the day. And the mountains were still filled with those wild blueberries that I was rambling on and on and on about in the last episode, as I do every July, because I still get really excited about the wild blueberries. Now, as we were climbing and eating, I said to no one in particular, because I like to make general assessing statements of the situation, I said, you know, the best blueberries are always the ones that oddly taste the most like artificial blueberry flavoring, like blueberry cereal or like gum. And it's true. And it's weird. The most authentic, most real blueberry flavor is the most elusive and hard to find. Those mainstream plumped up industrially grown for looks berries have no flavor and bear no flavor resemblance to either the fake blueberry flavor of the processed foods or their wild cousins. So who's scamming who here? I mean, I don't want to eat the fake blueberry flavored stuff, but the pints of cultivated berries taste like water. In the blueberry experience, the blueberry flavor pantheon, if you will, the semiotics of blueberryness, the blueberry cereal is closer in reality to the tiny wild berries that only grow on mountains for two weeks a year. So where does that leave everyone else who eats the blueberries from New Jersey? Are those even real berries? Where's the real? What is real? What is authentic? How do you know who you really are if you don't even know what you're supposed to taste like in the first place? Oh, my God. It's college all over again. It's like seminar in postmodernism and Baudrillard. It's a blueberry identity crisis. I feel like Linus in a Charlie Brown Christmas when he's yelling about nobody caring about the true meaning of Christmas anymore. Where's my blanket? Where are my real blueberries? So I'm thinking about identity and identity crises. Who are we? What makes us that which we are. All kinds of deep thinking has been occurring, all kinds of philosophy and pondering. I have a lot of time on my hands lately, and I've been stretching my weekends out to three or four days up at Tiny Bungalow to get in as much hiking and swimming and grilling and berry picking and gardening as I possibly can, because you know what? Before we know it, the cold winds of winter will start to blow, and we'll be watching a Charlie Brown Christmas yet again. Now, you know all about my friend Ida. I've talked about her before. She's my friend up at Tiny Bungalow. And Ida, you know, she's somewhere upwards of 70 years old, but she'll never tell her true age because she's a true old school lady. Now, Ida doesn't drive, so we always take her grocery shopping and thrift store shopping and big lots shopping and Marshall's shopping on the weekend. And she never really buys much, but she likes to look around. She likes to browse, much like me. I call it research. She just calls it looking around. She likes to see what's out there. She has this insatiable curiosity about the world, even though she's somewhere above 70. That's what I love about her. So Ida and I headed to our local ShopRite, which she likes better than Stop and Shop, which I prefer. ShopRite, Stop and Shop. Although, frankly, compared to the food and produce shopping in Brooklyn, both stores are a total joke. They're both crappy suburban supermarkets. So we walk into ShopRite and Ida accidentally steals some other old lady's shopping cart and then is yelled at by the second old lady. And I find this hilarious for some reason and start laughing. And then I turn around so she doesn't see me laughing. And I notice a display of Chips Ahoy. Chips Ahoy, because there's an exclamation point in there. Chips Ahoy cookies. And I get distracted. Now, not because I want Chips Ahoy. They're Chips Ahoy, which I've never really loved anyway, because chocolate chip cookies are supposed to be chewy 
and soft with a crisp edge. They're a contrast in textures. Chips Ahoy are hard and crumbly and crunchy. To me, that's not the correct textural experience of a cookie. If I were to buy chocolate chip cookies, which I generally don't, they'd probably be Entenmann's because it's, you know, the shout out to the home team, Long Island Strong and all that, although Entenmann's has now left Long Island. But back in the Venn diagram days of high school stonerhood, Entenmann's chocolate chip cookies were a staple on our metaphorical cafeteria table in my social circle. No, my foodiness-seeking eye was drawn to these particular chips ahoy because they were flavored. Now you're thinking, oh no, here she goes again. You know how bent I get about flavorings. And not just flavorings, but total identity transplantation flavorings. Like taking one species and transplanting it into another species of flavoring. Like birthday cake flavored vodka and Girl Scout cookie flavored coffee creamer in jelly donut flavored coffee. You know, that stuff. It goes beyond flavors. It is trans-species identity disordering. It's going to be categorized as a new affliction. Trans-species identity disordering. It's like taking the personality of a squirrel and placing it in the body of a jellyfish. It's messing with the natural order of things. Like mock duck made out of wheat gluten. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network. This summer is our fifth anniversary here at Heritage. Woo! Five years. Have you become a member yet? I'm a member. Jack's a member. Everybody's a member. They don't let us do our shows if we don't become members, actually. You're not cool if you're not a you're member. You're not cool if you're not a member. You're not sitting at the right proverbial table in the cafeteria. If you're not a member, you hear what I'm saying? Anyway, <clears throat> you need to join. Okay, that's as simple as that. And we're running some kind of something about Nathan Mervold and the cooking lab. And you can enter to win and you can spend a day there. And it sounds pretty cool to me. I do own the set of modernist cuisine books, although I have to say I've never even read them. They just take up too much space. If anybody actually wants to buy them from me, just, you know, message me on Twitter. Oh, and speaking of Twitter, do you follow me on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show? Or do you check out the Let's Get Real Facebook page? Hmm? Or do you read my vlog on letsgetrealshow.com? Oh, or now that I mention it, what about the Huffington Post? I write for that too. And you can check that out. And if you really can't get enough of me, go to newme.com, N-U-M-I, which is the Nutrisystem website. I write for them too. I'm everywhere. It's amazing. Anyway. What are we talking about? Identity crises. That's what we're talking about today on Let's Get Real. Crises of identity and trans species issues. So talk about an identity crisis. So these particular Chips Ahoy cookie offenders that I saw in 
ShopRite with Ida. We're a brand new creation from those devious Keebler elves who themselves are a result of a genetic mutation, being elves, and they should know better than to mess with the natural order of things. Because elfhood is a genetic fluke. And if you F around with the elves, okay, that's all I'm going to say. Being four foot eleven, okay, I know. Anyway, so those Keebler elves created this... Uh, Chips Ahoy or Nabisco? I don't think they are Keebler, actually. But anyway, these particular Chips Ahoy, with an exclamation point, these were not your regular chocolate chip basic Chips Ahoy. They were flavored. And you're thinking, oh, what were they? Like vanilla cream flavored? Or maybe they were, you know, double chocolate flavored or cinnamon. No, no, no. They were root beer float flavored chocolate chip cookies the chips weren't even chocolate the chips were root beer float flavored chips in a cookie do you get that okay Uh uh-huh so we're gonna have to do a little foodiness diagramming a little breakdown two guys who look like russian mobsters just sat down by the way outside of the studio to eat lunch i'm a little scared Anyway, so let's break this down into its basic foodiness elements. Although, I must say, this is not foodiness. This is just straight and pure crap. If it were foodiness, it would be making claims that it was something else and something healthy. So let's just get that clear. Because sometimes we let the definition of foodiness slip around here. Okay, so first of all, root beer. Root beer was originally brewed as a medicinal tonic from roots and bark and spices in the very early days of brewing as a medicinal beverage fermented from roots and bark and spices. I think the Native Americans probably were the first ones to make it, actually. I didn't do enough research, but it sounds about right. Colonial era. Because you couldn't drink the water back then because the water was always contaminated. So you had to drink fermented beverages, and this was one. And they would add all kinds of stuff, particularly sassafras root, which turned out to be... Um, carcinogenic and poisonous, so they would use other roots. Anyway, root beer. Slightly alcoholic, drunk medicinally, let's say. Now, like everything along the way, it became sweeter and more carbonated and industrialized and standardized and unalcoholized until there were no longer any roots and bark and nuts and berries involved, just artificial flavor and caramel coloring, which we also know as carcinogenic and the artificial flavors were created to give us what we all agree upon as root beer flavor that we all agree upon as this recognizable distinct flavor profile that we all say oh that is root beer flavor but there are no roots in root beer anymore which is actually probably the title of my next episode because i like that there are no roots in root beer Okay, so we all have this idea, like, this is what root beer flavor tastes like, even though there hasn't been a root in root beer, you know, for 75 years. Now, many years ago, there were these places called soda fountains. Soda fountains, like in the old Coca-Cola pictures from Christmas, you know, soda fountains. There was one in my hometown, believe it or not. I'm that old. So there were soda fountains. Before the massive, huge influx of pre-bottled and canned sodas bought in the supermarket became the norm, you would go to a soda fountain where they had a carbonation system, and they would put syrup in a glass and pour in soda water, and you would have a soda in a smallish glass, not in a 64-ounce strap-the-bucket-to-your-face style. A little glass. 
as an occasional treat. And sometimes the soda jerk, uh as the guys who worked there were called, the soda jerk could plop some ice cream into the glass, and that was called an ice cream soda. This is not such old stuff. We all remember it, I think, collectively, or at least from watching movies or Saved by the Bell. Didn't they all go to some soda shop? Or Melrose Place. Did they go to some soda shop? I don't know. Anyway, if it was root beer and vanilla ice cream, it became a root beer float. For some reason, that was different from a regular ice cream soda, which was just ice cream soda. On a side note, as a teenager, I used to go to this place in my town and order my ice cream sodas made with tab. Tab. Because I didn't want that 100 extra calories from the soda, so I would get a big scoop of chocolate ice cream in tab. I know. Gross. Look, people change and grow up. Look at me now, right? So if you use vanilla ice cream and root beer, it was a float. Now, this was back when the obesity rate in the U.S. was less than 5%, not like the 30-plus percent rate today. So it's not like people were, you know, eating the stuff, and uh, I don't know. I don't understand what that means. But anyway, the root beer floats were that. They were a thing, a distinctive, identifiable preparation with a distinct flavor. Vanilla ice cream, root beer. That's what it was, a preparation, a thing, okay? Then there's the chocolate chip cookie, which is a basic brown sugar cookie dough with a little bit of extra salt added and tiny bits of semi-sweet chocolate mixed in. That's a chocolate chip cookie, a separate, distinct species, like the root beer float, separate, distinct species. Both of them good. Also, that cookie should be soft and chewy, but I already mentioned that. So how do these two species morph You can't breed a pig and a hummingbird or a zebra with a rattlesnake. I mean, just the visuals alone on that are pretty freaky. So how can you breed a root beer float and a chocolate chip cookie together? It's against the natural order of things. Where does the root beer liquid go? Doesn't the ice cream melt at room temperature in the package of cookies? How do they do it? Oh, right. It's all fake. It's foodiness bullshit. All kinds of chemicals and flavorings, although without any health claims, so technically not foodiness. Just crap. What reality are we living in where you can take a frozen dairy product mixed with a carbonated beverage and mate them with a baked flour and chocolate product? It's against God's will. Against nature. Sorry. I got a little carried away there. Are we in the midst of a massive identity crisis here in America? Is the identity crisis that I was suffering in college just a mere tiny speck in the great universe of the giant identity crisis we're having here right now? Well, yes. Considering that unless you are truly Native American, you have no right to tell other immigrants to get out since we all came through those golden gates or brushed the feet of Lady Liberty somewhere in our collective past. Sorry, I just had to slip that one in there. It's a timely subject. So is it me? Am I too rigid in my definitions of what food should, is, or shouldn't be? Is it me? Should I just relax and accept the root beer float flavored cookie or the cappuccino flavored potato chip, which was also just announced in a new line of Lay's special flavors, one of them being the cappuccino flavored potato chip. Real thing. What about the grilled pork chop flavored Oreo or the KFC extra crispy flavored diet sports drink? Why not those? Why can't we just mash up everything? How far do we have to go with this? Are we that far down the rabbit hole as the fattest and sickest people on the planet? Do we need another flavor of coffee creamer? Do we need another variation on the chocolate chip cookie? I don't know. I 
Is it purely escapism, maybe, or is it boredom? Do we just have not enough options and we are bored and we just need to keep amusing ourselves? I don't know. Personally, I do think it's a massive identity crisis and collective nervous breakdown manifesting itself in our food. Or maybe it's a Monsanto craft and General Mills engineered distraction ploy to keep us all entertained like chubby toddlers while they GMO and pesticide us into drug-dependent oblivion where they can then medicate us and make us drink Ensure or Boost or any of those other nutrition drinks for seniors, which, by the way, I just read today, have double the sugar per serving than a bowl of Fruit Loops, but none of the Fruit Loops' fruity wholesomeness and nutrition. I'm just saying. It's just a thought. I mean, I'm not going to go back to being a vegetarian, You'll never catch me eating mock mushu pork made of soybeans again or anything like that. I know what to eat and I know how to do it and I'm sticking with it. It did take me a few long years of floundering around. Floundering around, sorry, but that's okay. I like flounder, real flounder, sautéed with butter and maybe some lemon. As long as that flounder hasn't been transspecied with a banana or an ice cream sundae or into a dessert topping, I'm okay with that flounder. I'm going to keep eating it. I'm totally fine with it. So remember, if you don't want to eat trans species shit or any other kind of shit, you need to keep listening to this show. Let's get real. The cooking show about finding and eating food here on Heritage Radio Network with me, Eric Weitz, because if we are having a collective nervous breakdown, I'll be here for you and I will support us all. And you can all come and stay in the shelter with me and it's going to be okay. We'll hold hands and it'll be all right. So until next week, thanks to Jack Inslee in the booth and Ben Kaplan who wrote my theme song, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. Questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.